I am Winnie. I am the wife of an alcoholic, a member of Al-Anon, and I'm not always happy with either one. <laughs> I will say, in all honesty, that Al-Anon seems to be a little more reliable than himself, but um, he tells me that's a matter of opinion, and since Al-Anon's made me give him an opinion, I have to accept it. I would like to thank the committee and Lubelle and Joe and all those other people that have listened to my tape uh, for inviting me to Arkansas. I, this is my first trip here. I'm a native-born Missourian, but the closest I ever got to Arkansas was halfway between Oklahoma City and Fort Smith when I was with my uncle who was visiting his bootlegger. And, uh, and I've just been delighted with it. We came in on Wednesday morning. And not being familiar with the territory, I, I had a moment of panic when I passed Conway Lake because I thought you were having a flood. I'd never seen anything with trees coming right up out of the middle of it before, but uh, I understand that's the way they planned it, and so I've accepted it. <laughs> I, uh, I want to tell you right off the top that I am not an authority on Al-Anon. I haven't got the slightest idea how it works. And I'm glad, because if I knew how it worked, I'd change it. <laughs> you see, that's my pattern. Figure it out and improve on it. Now, I didn't come to Al-Anon for any of the good reasons. Didn't come because I wanted it, because I needed it, or even because I thought it could help me. I didn't know there was anything wrong with me. I came because I'm married to a nut. And... Uh, he decided to go into the hospital and do something about his drinking, despite the help I had been giving him. <laughs> and one of the conditions was that he attend AA meetings. Now, at an AA meeting, he heard of Al-Anon. And you may not believe this, but he took the time to sit down, write a letter to the Al-Anon Central Office in Los Angeles, and tell those complete strangers that there was something wrong with me. <laughs> And when I got here, I didn't stay for any of the good reasons. I didn't stay because I liked it, because I didn't. I didn't like it to the point that I tried to join Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> I took their 20 questions test, and I flunked it. And so I went to the guy that I thought was the high mucky muck in our area, because he always got the chair with the seat in it. Because, see, when I came to Al-Anon, uh, the Alano clubs, were nothing like they are today. I mean, they used to furnish our Alano clubs with rejects from the goodwill. And if you didn't hit your bottom before you got there, you did shortly thereafter. <laughs> because none of the chairs had springs in them. But uh, this guy always seemed to get the chair that had the seat in it, and so I figured he must be the kingpin, so I went to him and I confessed. I said, I think I'm an alcoholic. And he said, what makes you think so? I said, well, I flunked your test. Well, he said, if you flunk the test, then the chances are you are an alcoholic. When did you have your last drink? Well, I said, I think it was about three years ago. <laughs> and he said, lady, if it's been three years and you've got to think about it, go back over with those women and let them help you. <laughs> now, I don't know what shape you were in when you came to this fellowship, but in my condition to be rejected by Alcoholics Anonymous... <laughs> was just about the last straw. <laughs> so I went back over with those women, more or less, I think, to get even with them, you know, and, uh, and even then, though, I didn't stay because I wanted to. I stayed because there was one female in that group, thank you, Bell, that was the nastiest woman I have ever come in contact with, and I decided to outsit her. <laughs> now, it wasn't so much what she said to me because she really didn't say anything. But she'd look at me and she'd go, and I didn't know what that meant. And she knitted. That almost drove me up a wall, you know, because I don't knit, and it isn't that I haven't tried. In fact, even today, when Eddie can't get a rise out of me any other way, you know, he'll say, when are you going to finish that sweater you started for me in 1942? <laughs> and in true Alamon tradition, I have saved it, and... Um, Someday I'm going to finish it, just so he can see the changes there's been in his life since 1942. <laughs> but anyhow, if you've got a mental picture of this female with her tongue going, 
while our knitting needles went click, click, click. Then you know why I'm here. And uh, I didn't even begin to believe I was sick, which was one of the first things they told me, until I started to like her. <laughs> and uh, then I went to my sponsor and I confessed. I said, I think I'm beginning to like her. And my sponsor had one answer for every situation. It's all right. <laughs> I could have told her I murdered my husband and she'd say, it's all right. <laughs> and I said, no, it's not all right. And she said, why isn't it? And I said, because I have never changed my mind about anyone. And that was the truth. You see, I put people in categories, those that you encouraged, those that you tolerated, and those that you ignored. And once I had you placed, you had to stay there, because I didn't know how to move you around. And I realized today that I probably deprived myself of a lot of very meaningful relationships because of my inability to allow people to be whatever they wanted to be. Now, I know there are some alcoholics in the group today, and if you don't mind, I'd like to give them their message first. <laughs> well, you know how they are. And the truth of the matter is, I'm not even sure I have a message for them, but uh, I was talking in Fontana, uh, which is a small town just east of where I live, one night, and after the meeting, a girl came up to me and she said, uh, where are you going to be the next time? And I said, well, I don't really know. Why? Oh, she said, I would just love to have my husband hear you. So I figured I must have said something profound, and I couldn't remember what it was. So I asked her. I said, do you think I could help your husband? Well, she said, not really. But after he hears you, he's going to be glad he got me. <laughs> So that may be the only message you get, but I want you to know it works in Alateen, too. I've sent a lot of kids home grateful, but uh, I, uh, I only have the one story, and I try to follow the formula by telling a little bit about what I used to be like, what happened, and in my particular case, I let you guess uh, whether I'm in any better shape today or not, because there are some people who aren't sure I'm going to make it. And that's all right. I mean, if they want to spend their time worrying about me, it keeps them out of trouble. But uh, I don't have to worry about what they're worrying about. That is growth in itself. I, uh, I only have the one story. And uh, as I said, I couldn't change it if I wanted to. But I'm one of those people that's very much like the alcoholic. I had to go through all those mean, lousy, low-down things I thought happened to me before I was ready for this way of life. If I had walked through that door one day too soon, I wouldn't have stayed because I didn't like it. I didn't like the idea of a group of people getting together and talking openly about things that I had spent my life either trying to forget or trying to live down. I grew up in a family where there was a drinking problem, and I used to say that my father was an alcoholic, but I don't know whether he was or not. He didn't think he was. He thought he was a social drinker. He lived a social drinker, and he died a social drinker, but he liked it. And when I wasn't helping him, he liked me, too. But when I came to Al-Anon, I could spot an alcoholic two miles away. Anybody that was going into a bar, coming out of a bar, standing in front of a liquor store, or just looking strange, <laughs> to me, was an alcoholic, because that's what I was accustomed to, strange people. And I didn't know where they came from, but they all moved next door to me. I was always surrounded by these weirdos. And growing up, it wasn't so much what my father did that bothered me. It was what my father wouldn't do that bothered me. You see, I'm a born researcher. And at a very early age, I began to research fathers. Now, this entails a little footwork. You have to go up and down the block, and you look at this father and the way he treats his child, this father, you know, cover the whole bunch, and then go home and look at mine. He never did any of the things I thought he should do. And I made a few suggestions, but I was raised in a hard-headed Irish family. And for some reason or other, my father refused to take direction from a five, six-year-old, whatever I happened to be. And so right then, I began to get even. I ignored him. And this, of course, made my life very miserable. Because when I was away at school, I could be honest about my mother, my brothers, my sister, but never my father. Always described my father the way I wished he was sort of a composite picture of all the good things I thought a father ought to be. And it made things difficult because it meant nobody could go home with me. 
Because you see, if they did, they were going to find out one of two things right now. The man that was living with my mother was not my father. <laughs> or that I was the biggest liar that ever came down the pike. Now, I never considered myself a liar. I looked upon myself as a diplomat because I didn't lie. I just didn't tell the truth. And I thought there was a difference. You see, I learned at a very early age that people anticipate what you're going to say. So you lead them up to a certain point and stop. They guess what you would have said if you'd have gone on. But they're very poor guessers. However, I never felt I should be held responsible for their inadequacies. And I have trouble with that even sometimes today because uh, since my husband's been sober and taken an interest in my welfare, which is just a nice way of saying he don't tell me to drop dead as often as he used to, <laughs> but uh, if I'm going someplace that's quite a ways away, he usually volunteers to go with me. Now this, at least for me, is a test of serenity because I'm married to the original, don't know where he's going when he leaves, he don't know where he is when he gets there, and he usually don't know where he's been when he gets back. But if he goes with me, he directs me every step of the way, you know. And uh, we're at opposite ends of the pole when it comes to being anything alike. Because I'm married to a thinker. Sometimes he'll think two, three weeks before he answers you. <laughs> Which is, uh, it's really, it's all right. I mean, it's a marvelous memory course. Because uh, you have to keep in mind everything you've been talking about. Because when he comes up with the answer, he never connects it to anything. He'll just say, yes. Uh, I'll, I'll give you a better example. Since he's given up drinking, he's taken up dusting. And that's almost as bad as drinking. But uh, we were playing golf one day, and I happened to look over, and he was dusting the golf cart. And I thought, this is ridiculous. So when I got back in the cart, I merely said to him, when you die, I'm going to bury you in a plastic bag. And he didn't say anything, so I didn't say anything. But about two weeks later, we were having a nice, quiet, friendly cup of coffee, and out of a clear blue sky, he said, I don't think that was very nice. <laughs> he thought it over, and he didn't like the bag idea. And so uh, that's the way he is. But uh, on the other hand, I'm one of those people that reacts immediately. I try to do it for you. Tell me what you want me to do. And uh, if you put two people like that in an automobile, you have a slight problem, you see, because if you're driving down the freeway and he says, turn right, I turn right now. <laughs> and he'll usually say, not here. <laughs> so on this particular night, I was having a moment of growth. And... Uh, <laughs> I just wasn't well enough to go that far with him, that's all. I had been asked to come down to Chula Vista, which is down near San Diego, and uh, I didn't want to tell him I didn't want him to go with me, because he gets hurt so easily, and, uh, and that requires amends and all that stuff. So I just merely said to him, I'm going to a meeting, he said, okay, and I left. Only that night I didn't get home at 10.30 or a quarter of 11, it was more like a quarter of one. And when I walked through the door, there he stood in my spot. <laughs> With that age-old question, you know, where the hell have you been? And without even thinking, I said, well, how far do you think it is to Chula Vista? Now, he accused me of lying to him, but I didn't lie to him. I didn't tell him I wasn't going to Chula Vista. And if he had said, Winnie, are you going to Chula Vista? I was willing to say yes. Are you getting the picture? <laughs> if you were bright enough to ask the right question, you got the whole story. And if you weren't, you got stuck with what you thought. And I might add that if you've never tried it, that can get you into a lot of trouble, too, especially in a small community. Anyhow, my dad did have one habit, kind of slopped over into later years, and that was sleeping on the living room floor. Now, it wasn't that he liked sleeping on the living room floor. That's just the way it worked out. Uh, he'd come home, and he'd sit down, then he'd lean down, then he'd lay down. <laughs> and uh, my mother, being the type of person she was, let me understand that his business. You tend to your business, we will have no problems. So I used to step over him and go about my business. But what I should have done was step on him. 
he bothered me on that living room floor. And when I got one of my own that used to pick peculiar places to sleep, I didn't care if he was on the porch, the lawn. I would have preferred something like the San Diego Freeway at home. And he had a double indemnity clause in his insurance. And that was one of the first games we ever played. I kept paying the premiums, and he took vitamins with his beer. But anyhow... <laughs> I couldn't stand him on the living room floor, and I can remember to this minute taking him by the heels, you know, and I'd pull him, and his head bounced. I loved it when his head bounced. There is something about that thud that just made me feel good deep down inside, you know, because I wanted to hurt him the way I thought he was trying to hurt me, and drunk as he was, you know, he'd say, you're not mad at me. You're mad at your father. <laughs> and, of course, I had one answer. Compared to you, my father was a Boy Scout. Now, the tragedy of that is that that's what I tried to live with. You see, a long time ago, probably farther back than I'll ever admit to, I became disenchanted with reality. Reality to me was something that was just too stark. I couldn't accept it. And I realized today that probably one of the reasons is that you can't face reality without the obligation of doing something about what's going on in life. I began to play Let's Pretend, and I played it so successfully that by the time I got to Al-Anon, I was living in a nightmare. I didn't know what was real and what wasn't real. And the worst thing about me was my imagination, because I always had that feeling that was talked about this morning of, the, of impending doom. Now, I don't know what happened to the man that I met, fell in love with, and permitted to marry me. But as soon as he was mine, I decided to help him. I wanted to help him become what I knew he wanted to be for my sake. <laughs> now, I'm not well enough yet to define that for you, but I'll tell you something that I didn't tell him, and that is that my health is deadly. I had friends that wouldn't tell me they were in trouble for fear I'd help them. <laughs> But, uh, of course, Eddie and I ceased to be friends. When we got married, we became competitors. He tried to outwit me, and I tried to outwit him, and the upshot of the whole thing is we ended up a couple of halfwits. But he was in the Navy. He was a professional man. He was a full lieutenant. And I didn't go into this blindly. Like I told you in the beginning, I'm a researcher. I researched the Navy, too. And unfortunately for me in the Navy, I came across the table of operations, and I noticed that there was only a couple of lines between what he was and what I decided to help him become, which was Admiral. <laughs> now, I knew they only had one Admiral in the dental corps, but I only had one man in mind for the job. It didn't look as difficult as it turned out to be. <laughs> had I been even halfway bright, I would have joined the Navy myself, because I showed up every day. No one had to worry about me. He only showed up when the spirit moved him, which wasn't too often. <laughs> And I would have made a marvelous short patrolman because I have a little bit of bird dog in me, and when I'd show up and find out he hadn't shown up, I'd just put my nose to the ground, and away I'd go, and sooner or later, I'd find him. Of course, by the time I found him, he was usually in no shape for me to let anybody else find him, so that's when I used to hide him. <laughs> we played hide-and-seek for years. He didn't even know there was a game going on, but uh, after he came to Alcoholics Anonymous, I felt I had to help him with the program. I, I just wasn't sure he was bright enough to get what they said they were willing to give him. And so I would go to every meeting, and uh, I had a small notebook. I would jot down a few of the pertinent things applied to his peculiar case. And then I'd spoon-feed it to him uh, during, well, in case they had an examination, at least the dummy could pass. And I want you to know that I heard two things at those meetings that are worse than drinking. Lots of things are worse than drinking. Sobriety, for instance. <laughs> I don't know about you, but it's always been personally easier for me to watch him throw up than grow up. It just worked out that way. <laughs> All there is to it. But anyhow, one of the things I heard was sleep teaching. I got myself a big AA book, and every night, just as Eddie would go to sleep, I would open it to chapter 5, and I would read to him. Rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. Such a reading you should have heard. I mean, the right phraseology, emphasis on the proper words, pauses in the proper places. I memorized the whole fifth chapter, and dummy slept through the whole thing. <laughs> but I still think sometimes, even today, when we go to an AA meeting outside our own area, where when you walk in, people don't really know 
which one is which? It's still me they come up to. And I say, keep coming back, honey, because it works. <laughs> oh, no, I, I heard an AA speaker up in Lancaster, California, sometime back now, but he made the statement that one of the things that made it difficult for him to come to Alcoholics Anonymous was the fact that none of them looked like alcoholics. But he figured in the 15 and a half years he'd been associated with the fellowship, he had probably come in contact with somewhere in the neighborhood of a quarter of a million alcoholics. And of those, only 10 really looked like alcoholics, but they turned out to be al <laughs> So if there's anybody wondering where the starting gate is, that's where she is. Anyhow, the other thing I heard was you can't get drunk if you're grateful. Now, right after I came to Al-Anon, they removed from my vocabulary a few of my finer phrases such as, uh, you had better not be drunk tonight. If I smell liquor on your breath, your clothes will be on the porch. My neighbors thought I was some kind of a fresh air nut. I put them out every night, brought them in every morning, you know. But they wouldn't let me say that, so I had to find some way to get the message across to him and still stay within the narrow confines of this organization. So when I heard that bit about gratitude, I, I latched right onto it. And uh, every morning when Eddie would leave for the office, I'd say, remember, today be grateful. And he'd say, for what? <laughs> So I used to give him things to be grateful for, but I wasn't really all that grateful myself in those days, so I began to wonder and make a list, you know, of things to give him to be grateful for, and while I was doing it, I happened to remember this game of hide-and-seek, and so I explained to him, because I am a great explainer, I don't know about anybody else, but I was never able to say yes or no without a detailed explanation as to how I arrived at that conclusion, and I'm really not much better than that today. Uh, well. As an example, I always wanted a watch with a little teeny, weeny, tiny face, you know, something very dainty to go with my personality. <laughs> and uh, as soon as my eyes got bad, Eddie got me one. And um, well, they have their own ways of getting even with you in case you're interested. But anyhow, I complained about it so much that he finally got me another one that, you know, uh, not this one, but one very similar. You could read it down the block if you wanted to. And in my enthusiasm, I pulled the stem out of it. Well, I didn't want him to think I was abusing his gifts, so I fixed it myself, because Alanon can fix almost anything, you know. It doesn't always work, but they fix it. And uh, anyhow, I, it, it was a marvelous thing for self-discipline for quite a while until it quit working, because you had to keep it wound. You see, you couldn't set it. And if you forgot to wind it, you were dead for 12 hours. So it... it it gave me something to do every day, and uh, anyhow, I was up in Kanab, Utah, and this poor soul, noticing I had a watch, asked me what time it was. So naturally, I had to tell him about the teeny-weeny watch and the bad eyes, and uh, pulling the stem out and keeping it wound, and this gains five minutes every 24 hours, and there's an hour's difference between California and Kanab, and I looked up, and the man was gone. <laughs> I guess he just didn't have time enough to find out what time it was, but... Uh, Anyhow, Eddie, of course, was a captive, so I did explain to him one day that when he drank excessively, it had been necessary for me on occasion to hide him. And uh, I had put him in some rather out-of-the-way places, but I'd never lost him. <laughs> so be grateful, you know. And I did put him in some strange places. The one that I always tell about happened down at the Long Beach Naval Station. And I tell it primarily because it points out so many things about me. Uh, they had a mock submarine just inside the sentry gate, and I came across Lloyd John in front of that mock submarine one, one morning with his six-pack of beer at the exact moment that I spotted his commanding officer coming from the opposite direction. And I had just told that man one of my butter stories, which meant I had to get rid of him. I mean, you can understand he was living proof I hadn't told the whole story, but I had no place to put him except in that submarine. Now, you have to remember, uh, Eddie got conditioned to me. Uh, when I came to Al-Anon, I had one of the greatest pitching arms. I could throw a full six-pack of beer farther than he had strength enough to retrieve it. So uh, if I was around and he had a six-pack of beer, he'd hold it like I was going to you know, take it away from him. And so on this particular occasion, getting him in that sub isn't as hard as it sounds. I just helped him up and he fell down. But getting him out... Now, that was a whole other story. He didn't trust me, so he wouldn't hand me the beer. And uh, 
I have many times wondered what that sentry must have thought of that female. Half in, half out of the conning tower, that darn submarine finally coming up with this lieutenant commander holding his beer in his hat. <laughs> he didn't know whether he was going up or down because I used to go on that base like I owned it. In my house coat and my clothes. <laughs> I don't really think the alcoholic appreciates what we give up in order to help them. In my particular case, it was dressing. I didn't have a choice. I could always go to bed in whatever I was going to wear the next day, but you just don't get that same comfortable feeling you get with one of them old house coats, you know. And mine, of course, was a chenille number. It had double duty, really. Whenever somebody upset me, I'd pluck it, you know. <laughs> Went through life plucking a, a chenille bathrobe. <laughs> well, I guess you know how I felt when Eddie came home and announced he had resigned from the Navy. I was like somebody that had lost a business. I was beginning to wonder about him, but I never blamed the drinking. I didn't want my husband to come to Alcoholics Anonymous and quit drinking. I wanted him to learn to mind. <laughs> and that's one of the reasons I had so much trouble with that first drink. You know, people would say, it's the first drink, and I'd say, no, it isn't. It's the second or the third or the fourth. I couldn't remember which one, and I got so bad about that that one day my sponsor said to me, don't help him, Winnie. Let him find out for themselves. And so I kind of shut up about it, but then, as God always does, he led me into a meeting, an AA meeting one night, and the man talked almost exclusively on the first drink. And uh, later on, I ran into him in the coffee shop, and I said to Eddie, I'm going to run over and tell that man how much I enjoyed his talk, but suggest very delicately that he'd be a little more factual if he's going to talk at that level. And uh, I want to give the devil his due. My husband has never deprived me of making as big a jackass out of myself as I want to. He sat right there while I traipsed across that coffee shop, sat down with this complete stranger, and picked his talk apart. And the poor man just sat there, sort of in a state of shock, you know. And uh, I made my few suggestions, and he still just kind of looked at me. Happened to be a railroad man from Texas. And uh, when I got all through, he just says, well, honey... Let me put it to you this way. When you get hit by a train, it ain't the caboose that kills you. <laughs> and from that day to this, I've had no trouble with that first drink. <laughs> but when Eddie came home and announced he had resigned from the Navy and I began to wonder about him, I didn't blame the drinking. I think one of the reasons is I used to enjoy those cocktail parties. I enjoyed that nice, easy social life in the service, and I didn't even mind making a jackass out of myself once in a while. He wanted to make a career out of it. And I couldn't get across to him that when you are invited to a cocktail party on Friday, you can come home on Friday. <laughs> you don't have to stay till Monday, you know. But I believe today, and it's only my opinion, but I believe in the, in the beginning, my husband and I had exactly the same problem. We had a problem of living. He found his answer by crawling into a bottle. I found my answer by crawling into his life. Because, you see, as his drinking increased, mine decreased. It became more important for me to know where he was, who he was with, what he was doing, what he was talking about, where he was going, how he was going to get there, than it was for me to go anyplace and enjoy myself. Because, you see, he became my answer, not my problem. But I still felt the responsibility that a good wife has to do something with that thing, and so I began to think about what could I do with him now. And while I was thinking about it, I happened to remember his mother. And I didn't like his mother, had no particular reason, except she was his mother. But um, she was a person that didn't drink anything but water. So naturally it dawned on me immediately, his problem. He hadn't been raised in a social drinking uh, family such as mine. Therefore, the poor thing had missed. He just didn't know how to drink. So I decided to teach him. Have you ever tried to teach a drunk how to drink? <laughs> you got one big problem. You got to get him sober enough to find out if he's learning anything that you're teaching him. <laughs> so in order to do that, I decided to get him out of California. I hated California. To me, it was one large bar separated by an occasional liquor store. And um, I decided to bring him back to the Middle West where people are really people. And that decision lasted, oh, maybe eight, well, until we got to Gallup, New Mexico, and that's where I made my first mistake. I stopped. <laughs> and he got into a bar that I was afraid to follow him into. 
Now, from where I was sitting, he and a tribe of Indians went in. And uh, I know what fire, water, and Indians do when they get mixed up together, and I didn't want to get massacred in that godforsaken place, so I sat outside and waited. Never dawned on me there was a back door. He went in the front door, out the back door, wherever he wanted to go, in the back door, out the front door, and there was old Faithful spouting right where he'd left her. And I always like to mention the little Indian squaw that was standing in front of that place, because I think she was my first contact with that certain something that I found in Al-Anon. In AA, they call it the unspoken language. But in Al-Anon, at least for me, I believe it's the language of the heart. This is the only place in my life that I have ever been where I can feel what somebody else is saying where I can watch somebody walk through the door for the first time and I don't have to know who they are, where they came from, what they do, what their husband... I don't have to know anything about them. I just look in their eyes. And when I see in their eyes that same, there ain't nobody home here look that I've seen in my eyes. I know where they've been. But sitting there in Gallup looking at that poor little Indian squaw, I was just so embarrassed for her. Of course, the second day she looked pretty good. <laughs> The third day, I kind of hide her, you know, because she, she and I were the only two sober people in that town. She embarrassed me that she would allow herself to be degraded by standing in front of that place. Of course, I'm across the street making peanut butter and jelly sandwiches for five children, but as usual, she looked strange to me. But while I was there, I had to make one of my many decisions, which is what my life has been, one decision after another, and I decided I would never again stop where the human race could contaminate my husband's. Now, if you are driving across country in an automobile and you don't intend to stop, you have to make adjustments. <laughs> and somebody had told me Texas had dry counties, so that's the adjustment I made. I mapped out a course so that we never stopped unless we were in a dry county. Now, it didn't do any good. He got just as drunk in a dry one as he would have been a wet one. But when you're going crazy on a slow, easy plan, this can help. Because you can spend hours wondering, where did he get it? <laughs> I don't know where they get it. But I know today that if I had locked Eddie in a closet or walled him up, he'd have come out drunk. I don't know where they get it. <laughs> but my kids think Texas biggest place on earth because it took us almost two weeks to get through it. See, what I didn't know was that Texas puts one dry one between two wet ones. And we darn near never got out of Texas. My, uh, it was sort of an unwritten law as far as the kids were concerned. If she stops, you've got anything to do, get out, get, get it done, get back. She'll never miss you. That's about the way it was. You see, I concentrated on that seat. And if it was full, we went. If it was empty, we waited. See how simple it is? Of course, God alone knows how much travel time we lost when he got in the back by mistake. I never looked back there. Because <laughs> that is not where he is supposed to be. And uh, I could depend on those kids. They wouldn't have said anything because one of their favorite sayings was, don't upset her. <laughs> that really used to bother me, you know. And, and yet today, and here again, it's only my opinion, but I don't believe my kids reacted to the alcoholic. My kids reacted to my reaction to the alcoholic because it's true. Eddie came home drunk lots of times, did very strange things. But they knew he was drunk and they knew he was strange. How do you explain me? I'm running the group. I don't know where I am half the time. I had one kid. I could not keep that boy in school. Take him to school, he beat me home. And uh, after he got to go to Alateen and I got to go to Al-Anon and we got to where we could talk as people instead of God and the little child, which is the way it had been. And I asked him one day, I, I said, Billy, why wouldn't you go to school? Didn't you like school? He says, yeah, Mom, I really did, but I was afraid you'd move while I was gone. <laughs> and, you know, that can be a real fear to a little kid. But anyhow, finally got to, to Harrisburg, Illinois, which I chose very carefully. It was my mother-in-law's hometown. I didn't like her, but I didn't mind using her. And uh, she had gotten herself elected secretary of the WCTU, and I figured, what's a better place to teach a drunk how to drink than underneath the nose of the Women's Christian Temperance Union? But uh, they weren't as good at researching as I was. It didn't take me long before I found the War Dads Club. And for $2, you could become a War Dad. Then you could drink all of the beer you wanted. Well, God, that was like dropping him off the Schlitz Brewery and saying, I'll see you in six months, honey, you know? <laughs> so I naturally had to move. And uh, while I was packing, I happened to remember, as I say, being a native-born Missourian, that Kansas is a dry state. 
But don't you believe it. Everything they drink in Missouri, they must haul over from Kansas. Because we were there less time than we were in Illinois until he found a bar within walking distance because naturally I took the car away from him just like you would any other 10-year-old child that you're taking care of. And so every morning he'd walk down to this place and it kind of tickled me. After he got sober, he told me that he had to pass a Catholic church on this jaunt. Now, I'm Catholic, but he's not. In fact, for years I thought I was doing penance for marrying that Methodist, but <laughs> anyhow... He took the time one day to go into that church, light a candle, and say a prayer for me. And then he noticed a sign that said the candle cost a quarter, and he didn't want to spend a quarter, so he blew it out. <laughs> and I have never had nerve enough to ask him, was he praying for me or against me? Because that's about the time the fun started. Now, here again, and it's only my opinion, but I believe the non-alcoholic is by far sicker than the alcoholic. Because you take a drunk to a meeting and you get him sober and right now, you're going to see a difference. But you take someone like me, perfect. <laughs> Never did anything that I couldn't explain. I've had enough time. <laughs> I devoted my life to my family, to my friends, to my community, to the Red Cross, to the DAR, to the Navy, really, well, to anything to get my hands on, really. I was very devoted. <laughs> and you tell me I'm sick. How can you be sick and do what I did? Or that I have to change? How would you improve on perfect? <laughs> and that's what I was. Miserable? Yes. Perfectly miserable. <laughs> Nothing upset me like a good day. <laughs> you ever had one of those? Where everything's going just the way it's supposed to, people are doing just exactly what they're supposed to, and you're sitting on the edge of your chair, waiting so you'll be ready. <laughs> you go to bed exhausted. Or the telephone. Loved the telephone. I used to watch it. <laughs> and that ringing almost drove me mad, you know? And the minute it stopped, I'd wonder, who was it? <laughs> the other reason I think the non-alcoholic is sicker is because occasionally, maybe Eddie wasn't sober, but he'd quit drinking. He'd be dry. I was crazy all the time. Because if he quit drinking, I'd try to figure out, what did I do to stop him? <laughs> and while I'm trying to figure out what did I do to stop him, he starts again. Now i got to find out what starts him, so if I ever stop him, I'll never start him again. Over and over and over. Well, he did quit drinking all of a sudden, and I had decided to help him become a millionaire. But I didn't tell him what I had in mind. That's the worst thing you can do, is let him in on your little secrets about what you're going to do for him, you know. I had picked out a small, unsuspecting town in the state of Missouri that needed a dentist, Went down to see a friend of my father's who, unfortunately for him, was in the dental supply business. And I set up one of the most beautiful dental offices you have ever seen. Even had patience. But I had no dentist. Because while I was busy doing all the things you have to do, he found the one place I overlooked when I canvassed that town. A bar called Blondie's. And to the best of my recollection, he was only out of that bar and in that office once. And that's when a man came in that I decided to help. So I went down to Blondie's. Now, I don't know how anybody else was, but I used to take on kind of a crazy hatty look. You know, if I got upset, my hair would stand right straight up. And it wasn't so much that my eyes came out, but my skin would go back. And I'd have a kind of a ferocious look, you know. And I would dare him not to do something, and he is not the world's bravest man. He would do it, and he did. We walked back to the office, walked in, and this jerk said, Listen, Doc. I'm allergic to Novocaine, but I got my own anesthesia. So he took a bottle out of his pocket. He had a drink. The dentist had a drink. They pulled the tooth, and they both went back to Blondie's. <laughs> and that's when I made up my mind that that town could suffer. <laughs> I wasn't going to help them. And yet today, as I have been many other days, I'm grateful that drunk as he was, sick as he was, he was more emotionally stable than I was cold sober. Because, you see, those people weren't people to me. I didn't care whether he helped them or not. I don't even believe that in the final uh, part of my illness that it was my undying love for him that kept me trying to change him. I was confused by thinking that if he changes, I'm going to be all right. That isn't the way it worked for me. You see, I was a person that spent my life searching for success. That's what I, the way I was raised. You have to be successful. But I didn't know what success was. And I couldn't find it. I didn't find it really until I came to Al-Anon. 
My number one son was drafted, and I didn't really want to join the Army, but it looked like I might have to. Because <laughs> he's very much like his father. And uh, I'd go to those meetings, and I didn't come right out and tell him what I had on my mind, but I hinted, you know. And my girlfriend, the one with the knit needle, she was always kind of tuned in to me, and I guess she got tired of it one night because she said to me, why don't you get off that kid's back and allow him the dignity of failure? I'd never heard those two words used in the same sentence before. I didn't know there was a dignity to failure. But she went on to say, if he never fails, he can't possibly succeed. Because if he's never experienced one thing, he'll never recognize the other. And do you know that since that night, I've never been to an Al-Anon meeting, to an AA meeting, or even to an Alateen meeting. And I bet you haven't either. That you haven't watched absolute failure walk through that door, stick around, and become a success. I don't mean from a monetary standpoint, because success to me today is not something that you invite people over to or drive them around the block in or wear to a party. Success to me today is the ability to get up in the morning, look in the mirror, and know who I am. Or to be able to stand right here, right this minute, and say, my name is Winnie Eddy, and know who I'm talking about. Because, you see, all my life I had a name, but I never had an identity. I was somebody's mother, somebody's wife, somebody's sister, somebody's daughter, somebody's granddaughter, somebody's something. But who am I? I asked my sponsor that. I said, how do you find out who you are? And I must tell you, I had a sick sponsor. Poor thing can never answer a question without going into great detail. And, uh, how do you find out who you are? And she said, well, dear, when you have cake for dessert, how do you serve it? Thought I was kidding, didn't you? I always humored her a lot, so I told her. I said, I take a pretty good-sized piece, and I give it to Eddie, and then I'm very even with the children, and sometimes there's a little piece left over for me, and sometimes there isn't. She said, yeah, that's the way you live your life, too. I said, what? She said, you take a great big chunk of your life, and you give it to him, and then you're very even as far as the children are concerned, and sometimes there's a little piece left over for you, and sometimes there isn't. And I said, well, my Lord, what are you doing in a case like that? Oh, why, she said, it's very simple. You take the first piece of cake, and that's what I try to do, one day at a time, to the best of my ability. Because, you see, I found out the hard way. If I do for you in preference to doing for me, I'm setting you up. And it may take me years before I call in that marker, but someday it's going to be your fault that I didn't do what I wanted to do, or go where I wanted to go, or become what I want to be. And so I take the first piece of cake one day at a time because being good to me makes it possible for me to be good to you. But I was still a long way from, Cal from Al-Anon. When I left California, I had five children. I have eight altogether. I usually make you count them as I did when they creep in. I was always surprised. I don't know. Eddie was a little shocked, too, when he sobered up, but that's his story. I try not to get involved in that. Um, I knew when I left California that I was expecting a baby, but I always lived on a schedule. You know, uh, make the beds at 7 o'clock, which isn't easy if they don't get up till late and all them other things. And if you have five children, having a baby's no big deal. Uh, I put it at the bottom. I'd been busy, and uh, but it was getting close to the time, so I went up to see this doctor in Kansas City. Now, whether you realize it or not, doctors are very happy people. Well, some are just glad you're sick, but this one was the joy boy of the whole bunch. <laughs> you should have seen the treatment. He brought me in, sat me down, patted me on the head, and then he hit me with the bat. Mrs. Eddie, you're going to have twins. That's what I said. <laughs> I, uh, I almost died in his office, you know. Because I wasn't really counting on one. He's insisting on two. And I got problems. I got a dental office with no dentist plus five and that thing I don't know what to do with. And besides all that, I knew what Eddie was going to say when I told him because he said it. There are no twins in my family. <laughs> I got so involved defending my moral character that I forgot there were twins in my family. <laughs> it wasn't until after they arrived my mother said, Isn't it nice we have another set of twins? I said, in whose family? She said, ours. I said, well, why didn't you tell me? She said, you never ask me. That's no big deal. I never ask anybody anything. Can you think of a better way for people to find out that you don't know something than to ask them? 
Why, even when I was lost, you know, I'd pull into a filling station and I would say to the attendant, uh, where are you located? Because <laughs> I knew that if I found out where he was, I'd know where I was. <laughs> and he'd never know I didn't know, you know. Well, anyhow, at the appointed time, I went into the hospital here again. Hospitals are happy places. I had been happy once. It hadn't worked out well, so I didn't really want what they had. And as soon as I could, I had a phone put in. If I thought I was getting happy, I'd pick up that phone, call the office. I knew Eddie wasn't going to answer that phone. I wasn't even sure he knew I'd put a phone in there. But the point I'm trying to make is I don't need him to make me miserable or you or them out there. I just have to have a little bit of time to think, to wonder... Where is he? And who is he with? And what is he doing? While I lie here. Fifteen minutes, that's all it takes. You're having hysterics. The nurse don't even know what happened to you. You haven't had a visitor. You look like you've been run over by a truck. See? Because I never thought of my husband being out with the boys. There's no fun in that. Mine was always out with the girls. Those pretty sweet, lovable things you find in them damn dirty bars. You know. The ones that look like me before he did this. And then if you're like me and you like to be right, you find a mirror, and you are. You look like something that left over from a bad Halloween party, you know? Because being a martyr is not easy. That's a 24-hour-a-day concentrated effort. Or you don't get the look. you got to have circles down to here, preferably with bags. And tear stains that get kind of worn in. And then if you follow the proper procedure, which is lots of coffee, plenty of cigarettes, and positively no sleep, that's when you get the big one. That's sort of a twitch. (laughs) Well, can you imagine giving up all of that excitement for this? That's what I had to do. As I told you in the beginning, it was a letter that my husband wrote that got me to Al-Anon, and I am as grateful today as I have been many other days that he cared enough that he wanted to share that certain something that he felt he had found in Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm also grateful to God, as I understand him, that he sent me a sponsor who had the patience of Job, because I wasn't an easy nut to crack. You know, I had to catch me first, and first day she came out, she found the front door nailed shut, which was a necessity. Well, I was in no shape to cover two doors. I was pooped. I... But uh, she went around to the back, and uh, the car was in the driveway, the coffee pot boiling on the stove, and she used me, but she couldn't find me. So she went next door. She asked this little old lady whether or not Mrs. Eddie was at home, and you know what that woman said? Even if she is... She thought I was crazy And I did resent that Because I never bothered that woman Once we almost got trapped in the backyard together I hid in the bushes till she was gone you know. And my kids, they never bothered her I didn't forbid them to go over there Because I always felt that forbidding people uh, Children uh, left scars So I used a little psychology You know, tell them the story of Hansel and Gretel make them, Let them make up their own minds You want to end up in an oven? Go on over there. But she did scare a woman when she came back that night. She had a friend with her. And uh, I don't know to this day how she got in. Uh, I used to get my kids to bed on a production basis. Everybody in the tub, everybody washed, rinsed out, dried, dressed in bed. Some other can worry. And Wilma came between the drying and the dressing process. And, uh, God, I couldn't hide them. I couldn't even catch them. I had all these little naked bodies running around. But she never even hesitated. She picked up a towel and she wiped and talked. Alcoholics, Alcoholics Anonymous, Al-Anon family groups, and I didn't even know they lived in the neighborhood. But she finally said the magic word, drunks. I knew why she was there. She needed me. That's what she said, and she had a bunch of friends that needed me, and she wanted me to help them. But the funny thing is, when she went out that night, whatever she brought in with her went out with her. I gave her just time enough to get home, and then I called and told her that something very important had come up. I would be unable to attend the meeting she was scheduling. Now, I hadn't even done anything unimportant for a long time, but I couldn't let her find that out. See, I couldn't let her know how unimportant I was, and that should have been the first chink in the armor. The first time I began to realize I never hid from you, I hid from me. 
Because, you see, a long time ago, I got the idea that I didn't measure up to what I thought you thought I ought to be. And so I built a wall, which was supposed to keep you from finding out how inadequate I was. But the sad part of the story is, I'm the one that got lost behind the wall. Because when I came down on I didn't laugh, I didn't cry, I didn't care. I knew it had to end, and I just wanted it to be soon. But, you know, even a defect of character can put you into good stead. I felt I owed this woman something, and I had told her that I would help her. So two weeks later, I condescended to go to my first Al-Anon meeting in Azusa, California, and I hope I never forget it. I don't ever want to be an old-timer in this way of life. Because, you see, I was an old-timer when I got here. But I want to remember every single solitary day of my life what it's like out there without places like this and people like you. I didn't have an easy time with the program. I fought it every step of the way. And my sponsor did make one mistake. She said, we use the same steps in Al-Anon that they use in Alcoholics Anonymous. Big deal. Oh, if she wanted it that way, I'd work it that way, and I did. The first one said I was powerless over alcohol, which is ridiculous, and that my life had become unmanageable, which it wouldn't be if it hadn't been for him, so I figured that must be his step. So I left it for him. Then it had that second one. Unfortunate word in that second one. It said, came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. Now, anybody with half a brain knows that if you're going to be restored, honey, you've got to be crazy to begin with. And I wasn't, but he was. So I left that one for him, too. But the third one I skipped for both of us. It asked me to turn my will and my life over to the care of God as I understood him. I understood him. He did not understand me. And I didn't really hate Eddie enough to turn him over, so I skipped that one for both of us. Now, I wasn't going to turn my will and my life over to the care of God, but to give it to anybody else on earth, whether they wanted it or not. And the example I usually use is our L.A. freeways. Now, when I get on the freeway, I go right over to the left-hand lane. I go straight ahead. That's where I'm going. And I don't know why, but there's always some stinker will get right on behind me, pull just ahead of me, move over, and slow down. Which means i got to get over here, get ahead of him, move back over, and slow down. So he will know how I feel. So he gets ahead of me, and then I get ahead of him, and then he gets ahead of me, and then I get ahead of him. And five miles down the road, he turns on his right-hand blinker, gets over, gets off the freeway, and he's home. I'm five miles past my turn. Because he has been in control of my life. But I wasn't going to turn it over to God. However, I did notice that when I would call my sponsor with certain situations, she'd say, well, just turn it over. She never said to whom, which I could understand. It's an anonymous program. You don't tell everybody who has the problems. But um, on this particular day, I had a pretty good size one, and I called her and <clears throat> told her about it. She said, well, Winnie, just turn it over. I said, Wilma, you've been telling me that for months. You never said to whom. Oh, why, she said, I thought you knew. You turn it over to God. I said, no, I don't. I haven't even told him I'm going to Alan on yet. <laughs> And I could tell by the tone of her voice that this upset her. I didn't want to upset her. This is a sick woman. So I began to wonder, what could I turn over to God that he couldn't allow something that would make her happy? Took me about three days, I guess, and then I called and I said, Wilma, I have decided to turn something over to God. She said, good. What are you turning over? I said, my ironing. She said, your ironing? I said, well, you said it didn't make any... Oh, no, no, no. She said, that's all right. That's all right. Now, I had a perfectly legitimate reason for turning my ironing over. It had been the bane of my existence since I came to Al-Anon. Because, you see, when I came to Al-Anon, I was hooked on a washing machine. I used to wash like it was going out of style, but I never ironed. And the minute Wilma found that out, she said, that's a defect of character. Which I corrected. I quit washing. <laughs> but that didn't work out too well, so I started ironing one shirt at a time, which made Eddie unhappy. He'd say to me, why do you only iron one shirt at a time? I said, I only live one day at a time, and that's it. He said, well, I like a choice. I said, pick out the one you want me to iron then. I, shoot. But anyhow, by turning my, my ironing over to God, I got rid of Wilma, I got rid of Eddie, and it, you know, just might work. But it turned out to be a mess. I mean, I used to keep my ironing nicely, you know, folded and everything. I turned it over to God. 
Oh, it slopped out of the cabinets, ended up in boxes. The boxes ended up in the rumpus room. And you've never seen a bigger mess in your whole life. Every time Wilma would come to my house, I'd say, have you seen the ironing? <laughs> That's when she'd give me routine number two. It's all right. I figured if it don't bother her and it don't bother him, I'm not going to let it bother me either. And then one night after an AA meeting, a man came up to me and he said, Winnie, you got a bunch of kids, don't you? And I was admitting it by then. I said, yes. He said, well, I go to an orphanage down in Mexico, and those little kids could sure use anything that your kids might have outgrown. I promised him faithfully I would go right home, I'd organize everything, and he could pick it up at his leisure. But I am a procrastinator by profession. He didn't follow me home by morning. I forgot he asked me. Now, sometime after that, and I'm not sure the span of time, but I came home from an Al-Anon meeting one night, and Eddie said, uh, Bill was by, and he picked up the stuff for the orphanage. I said, he did? He says, yeah. I said, where'd you get it? He said, the box is in the rumpus room. Now, in case you haven't put it together, that was my ironing. And I want you to know that from that day to this, I have no problems turning things over to God. Because my God, as I understand him today, has some of the most unique answers. I never would have thought of sending him to Mexico. story to be blasphemous because for me today this whole way of life is spiritual but there is a certain little spiritual part that's very private and very much my own and uh, I don't know I have a, a contact that I, I don't ever want to lose but I don't think God wants to listen to me cry for the rest of my life and I don't think one of the prerequisites of a happy existence is counting the cracks on the sidewalk if you want my honest opinion I think it kind of gives him a charge to hear me laugh to know that finally I'm beginning to enjoy the life that he saw fit to give me. And so I kind of keep a light touch. Now, it don't work 100% of the time, but that's okay. When he louses it up, I forgive him. <laughs> three, uh, oh, about three years ago, I, I went to Germany with my son, Frank, who's very much like me, to visit my son, Arthur, who's also like me. They're all like me. Uh, we get off the plane in Frankfurt, can't speak the language, don't understand it, don't know where we're going. It was a mess. First English words, your luggage is lost. Well, my son Frank went right into orbit. He said, what in the world are we going to do? Well, I said, we're going to be the first people through custom. And we were. Now, the next day, we were in Berlin. The luggage was in Berlin. They even delivered it. So my conclusion was... God just didn't want to stop in Frankfurt. That's all. <laughs> now, the point of that whole story is all the worry in the world would not have brought that luggage back if I was not supposed to have it. But what it would have done, could have done, and has done in my life is robbed me of the only gift God gave me that I cannot re replace. Time. Every second of every minute of every hour of every day that I spend worrying about things that I can do nothing about. I have just spent the most precious gift I own, and I have no way of replacing it. And so I try not to worry. Now, that don't work 100% of the time either. But what I have today that I didn't have before I came to this way of life is an awareness of who louses up my life and when I am worrying about things that I can do nothing about. And so with that awareness, I try, one day at a time, to the best of my ability, to practice the principles that you saw fit to give me. And thank God that my husband had an illness that required that he find a way of life such as this. Maybe that's one of the reasons why today, as I have been many other days, it makes me very happy when I say, my name is Winnie Eddie, and I love an alcohol. Because you see, without that, I wouldn't have what I've got today. I'd like to close with a little poem that I use every time I talk, and it may mean nothing to you, but 
It's always meant a great deal to me because my sponsor gave it to me at a very low time in my life when I was finding it very difficult to practice the principles of this, this way of life. And, and the first time I read it, I had a mental picture of my kids when they used to come to me with their yo-yo. And they'd have the yo-yo clutched in this hand and the string attached to this hand. They'd say, come on, Mom, get the knot out of the middle. And there wasn't a way in the world I could get the knot out of the middle of that string unless they handed me the yo-yo. And sometimes today, when I don't have time for the whole, whole poem, that's my shortcut. Please, God, I got another knot in the string. But anyhow, the little poem goes like this. As children bring their broken toys with tears for us to mend, I took my broken dreams to God because he was my friend. But then, instead of leaving him in peace to work alone, I hung around and tried to help with ways that were my own. At last, I snatched him back and cried, How can you be so slow? My child, he said, What could I do? You never did let go. So if I don't leave anything else here as my gift to you on this beautiful weekend in Nebraska, I hope you'll try to remember just one thing. If you let go, and you let God, and you let the caring we've shared here for the last three days be a part of your life one day at a time, you got the recipe for a good day. Because God loves us, and we love each other. And I love you. God bless and thank you for asking me.